Good morning, everyone. This is quite the dark text. <laughs> and before we begin, I had a question online that I uh, answered. I uh, talked to a person um, who didn't go to St. Andrews but has been watching. They had a question on um, Bathsheba. And uh, last week I'd said that David and Bathsheba repented. And they wanted to know, well, where did I get Bathsheba repented? And I hadn't read that in the text, um, but as I went through, one of the reasons I thought that Bathsheba might have repented was because I compared that to Michael, who uh, Michael was struck barren because of her attitude towards David, but Bathsheba was given Solomon. But also when you come to this passage, you also see uh, how Tamar reacts to being raped, and she wondered if that this person wondered if Tamar, um, if, if Bathsheba had been raped by David or not. But you see how Tamar reacts. You don't get that same reaction from Bathsheba. So the question is, was Bathsheba a willing participant and she and David had an affair? Or was Bathsheba pressured into it because David was a king? And that was just a question that was asked. Um, when you're reading into those passages, it's perfectly acceptable to say, well, maybe Bathsheba was pressured into it and maybe Bathsheba... Um, was forced into it, but I don't read anything that says forced. She may have been pressured, uh, so that's a perfectly acceptable reading. Just wanted to give you that. As a pastor, you kind of got to make calls, and so one of the things I think because of this passage and because of other passages, I think the two had an affair. That's just my call, but you're free to make other calls, Uh, but I think because of this passage where Tamar has a very different reaction when she was raped at Bathsheba, because Bathsheba was later blessed and then lost the child. That's why I go with, but they both repented and they both changed and Bathsheba was honored in a special way. Anyway, so it's just a question that was asked to me and we'll get other questions online. And if you are online, feel free to ask questions and I will try to answer them during the week or Father Chris, if he's preaching or Father Scott will answer them during the week. Let's open with prayer. Well, Father God, as we um, come before you uh, this week and we uh, unpack this Really dark passage. Uh, this passage is uh, tough, and we're just getting tougher and tougher as we dig into Samuel. It's going to get rawer and rawer, and you are, like I said, the God of the ugly uh, last week, and it's just going to get uglier now. And so where are you in this, Father? Where are you when a person is raped? Where are you in revenge and murder, and where are you in the lust, and where are you when ugly things happen to us? Father, I pray that you would speak to us. Many of us have been victims of ugly things. Many of us have been victims of things that are unspeakable. And yet, you were there. You know you are everywhere. And where were you? Many of us ponder that. I hear that a lot. Many of us scream out, Where were you, God, when this happened? Where were you when Tamar was raped? Where were you when this happened to me? Where were you? Where are you, God? Is a scream that so many of us ask. Father, I pray that you would show us, that you would speak to us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us in this passage this morning, in this darkest of passages. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Reuters wrote a story, Revenge Really Is Sweet, the study shows, August 27th, 2004. It's a 
a new study then, not a new study now, and the, the researchers suggest that re- revenge is really sweet, it says, and has brain scans to back up the claim. The study published in the Journal of Science paired 15 male students who believed they were taking part in an economic study. The first person would give all or some of his money to the second person, and then the second person would give none of it back. But here's the deal. They played some kind of game, and the, the person they gave the money to would get four times the amount of money and then give none of it back. So then they ran a study. The first person could deduct, in this game, they could deduct some points from that person, or they could take some of their money back. And then they began to scan the brains of those people. If the second player refused refused to share, they could take these points away. Researchers scanned the brains. Linked to enjoyment and satisfaction, that section. And while subjects learned about the other's abuse of trust and determined their response, the results showed a clear pattern of activity in the brain centers indicating satisfaction when one player penalized another for being selfish. Psychologist Brian Knudsen of Stanford University in California likened the feeling to a driver refusing to let another he considers to be a cheater squeeze in front of him in traffic. Newton said, instead of cold and calculated reason, it's passion that may plant the seeds of revenge. He added, after squeezing back the intruder, you can't help but notice a smile creep onto your face. In our day and age, it's probably the same thing that makes Ken and Karen smile when they yell at you for not having a mask or not being at the appropriate distance. Of course, this study hasn't discovered anything new, has it? Revenge has been with us since the very beginning, the earliest of days. History is literally rife with stories about it. Whole wars have been fought over this, right? I mean, that's all you have to read. Entire countries have gone to battle over revenge. Friendships have ended. You maybe have had friendships ended over revenge. Families have been destroyed over revenge. And more murders than we can possibly count have happened over revenge revenge. Well, our passage today is dark because it mixes some of the deadliest of all sins. Not only revenge, but lust and rape and murder. This passage is kind of twisted. And we see what happens when we begin to water the smallest of sins and we let it grow and we let it grow and we let it grow. And isn't that like what happens in our lives? We learn from these passages. When we in our own lives let our sin get out of control. And so many of us think that when we have something major happen in our lives, we're shocked by it and it just kind of came out. I'll talk to people all the time. This just happened, right? I had a youth leader who was in prison ministries and he said, you know, prisons are chock full of people that are really good people and just one thing happened in their life. They just did a thing. The rest of their life was a good life. Maybe they just blew up one day and ended up committing murder. And over time, I've come to disagree with him. I I don't think that's what happens. I think they nurtured a sin, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it finally exploded, and that's how they got there. And this passage seems to show that that's how it happens. So let's dig in, shall we? 
Now, I want you to know before we dig in, and my wife always warns me about saying this, but there is more to this passage than we can cover in one sermon. She says, you always say that. Well, I'm saying that with this passage. There's a lot. So I'm only going to whet your appetite. I could go many directions with this passage. There's a lot theologically here. There's a lot with redemptive history here. There's a lot of ways we could talk about this passage, as you'll see. But our goal is to skim across 2 Samuel and kind of whet your appetites. So I'm going to just cover a few things in this passage. This one is particularly deep. And so I hope that you'll study it a little bit more in depth. And I hope that from our series on 2 Samuel, you're understanding how deep some of these Old Testament passages are. A lot of us just kind of blow over these things. We don't realize how much they have to teach us. So in the case of both Absalom and Amnon, I want you to notice this. It's worth noticing the parallels in this passage. So that's as we begin. Both brothers, if you have your Bibles, follow a similar pattern. They both begin down a similar path. You'll miss that because here's the thing. They're both following different sins. One's following the path of lust. The other's following the path of revenge. And because they're following different sins, we're tempted to think, ah, well, it's a different thing entirely, and we miss that. In fact, I've missed that for most of my life. It wasn't really until I was looking at it this week and comparing it with 1 Samuel. I happened to be doing a Bible study on 1 Samuel, looking at 2 Samuel. And because I'm doing them both at the same time, it's been incredibly enlightening. And I was like, huh, how did I miss that? Uh, these guys are following a similar pattern the whole way through. They both refuse to recognize that they are in sin even though both of them are the king's sons and they would be well-versed in the law of Moses. They would both know the things they are considering as evil, which means that both men are openly failing to repent. What does repentance mean? Everybody knows what repentance means? It means to turn from your sin the opposite direction, to turn away. That's what it means, right? That's repentance. Both men know that they're failing to repent. They both indulge their sin, and they let it go strong, building up day by day. And finally, when it gets strong enough to consume them, they both finally act upon their sin. And this is the pattern to notice in the passage. And it's the pattern that we as believers need to grasp from this passage of Scripture. And it's the same pattern that we, once we grasp this, you're going to be able to help your friends and your family and your neighbors because you're going to see this in them. They're going to wonder, why is this mystery? Why do these bad things keep happening to me? Now, sometimes bad things happen to you uh, because of sin. But sometimes bad things keep happening in your own life because you're a sinner and you keep following these patterns of sin, right? Right. If I keep on following bad patterns in my life, a lot of bad things will happen to me, right? Now, I think God's punishing me, but it's really because of my bad actions, I keep doing stupid things, then stupid things happen to me, right? If I, don't, if I don't watch my budget, then I keep on getting in debt. Oh, God, why are you punishing me for my money? Well, I keep spending like crazy, right? If I keep cheating and having affairs, then I keep breaking up my marriages. Oh, Lord, why is this happening to me? I hear that. Other times, just bad things happen. You have to distinguish the two. But you'll learn this pattern in people's lives. These patterns of sin are common to us all, and the, better we learn to, the more we learn to recognize them, the better we'll begin to grasp the nature of sin in both ourselves and others. So let's look. 
2 Samuel 13, 1-2. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. That's where we start. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. Loved her, it says. Now, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. That's a description of love, if I've ever heard it. I love you so much, I want to do something to you. Right? Now that's love. Is it not? Next time you love somebody, tell them that. I love you so much, I want to do something to you. Now that's the first clue that this may not be love. Second Samuel 13, 22. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tam- Tamar. You see the parallels? Hatred grows, and what's growing in Amnon? It's not love, but what is it? Lust. Lust is growing, and hatred is growing. Do you see the parallels that are happening in both men? Lust is growing, and hatred is growing. Neither man is stopping the roots. The roots are now in them, and neither man is stopping. In fact, they're both nurturing it. And you watch this nurturing process going on. They're watering it. They're feeding it. They're letting it grow and grow and grow. We know Amnon's thing is anything but love. Jesus describes love as being willing to lay down our life for another. And we know with Amnon, if he does this thing to her, he's going to disgrace her. Why? Because he's going to rape his sister. And that is obviously a disgrace. I mean, it's incest, and we know that's wrong. Now, she's his half-sister. Early on in in the history of the ancient Near East, such a thing was okay. But after the law of Moses, such a thing becomes not okay. So early on, when there were very few people, marrying your half-sister was a thing that was acceptable. But now, in this period of history, it is not acceptable. So such a thing is not okay. So Tamar is wise, and she tells him when she's trying to push him off, why don't you go ask our father? She knows exactly what's going to happen. The father's going to go, no, no, no. She's trying to push him off. But he knows that. His greed for her, his lust for her, is insatiable. And Amnon's desire is not to lay down his life for her. It's not to take her as bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, like Genesis says, and that's what we desire to do when we want to take a wife or take a husband. In other words, to be bonded to her for life. This is what lust is. So you see, lust teases us. It pretends to be love, but it isn't. It mirrors love, but it's not. It can spring from infatuation, which many people confuse with love. Now, when you're a teenager, you will commonly confuse infatuation with love. This is common. How do I know I'm in love? And this drove me nuts when I was a teenager. All adults say, you'll just know. Well, how will I know? You just will. And so I would talk to a teenager, if you want to know you're in love, here, talk to me. Tell me about the person that you're in love with. Well, he makes me feel, and I love how I think, and this is what I do, and you're not in love. Well, how do you know? Just know. You see, when you're infatuated, you like the feeling that the person gives you. You'll talk about how they make me feel, what I like, what I think. It's about me, about me, about me. 
When you begin to talk about love, you begin to talk about the other person, the good things in them. You begin to see them. You like the union. You like the other. You like them. Not just their beauty. You see the person. You see who they are. When you're infatuated, you can't be apart. You have to be there. There's a, there's a desire to always be there. When you're in love, you can be apart. You want the best for another person when you're in love. When you're infatuated, it's a drug. You have to be with them constantly. These are just some of the things. When we're older and married or single, and after someone we shouldn't be after, we fall into an infatuation trap as well, like Amnon does. Infatuation is about me, not thee. And the easiest way, like I said, is listening. A person who's in love thinks about the other person. A married person who is infatuated is often bored, right? They're often tired. They often don't want to put into this relationship. They're in love with the new thing. I hear this, I've fallen out of love, pastor. No, no, you haven't. Love is a commitment. Love is an action, not a feeling. It's devotion. You're not trying hard enough. You want the feelings of romance put back into the relationship and the effort. You just like the new feeling and a buzz. As a married person, you're always going to have someone you're attracted to. There will be someone at some point in your marriage that you're going to be like, "Woo! he or she makes me feel that way. Pray to the Lord. Cut that bond. Get away from that person for a while. Reconnect with your spouse. Admit the feelings. Don't deny them. They will always be there. There will always be someone. That doesn't mean you're falling in love with them. Stop! There are other really cool people out there, yes, but that doesn't mean they're for you. Your spouse was for you. You took the vows before the Lord, and the Lord expects you to honor them. Amnon's lovesick. He can't eat. He can't sleep. He can't think. He's totally under the spell of infatuation. It's extreme. But more than that, it becomes full-on lust, which at that point in his time is not allowed. His sin is ravenous. And so he rapes, and his lust is quenched, and then he hates her. Why does he hate her? Why? Because that's the nature of lust. She is meat to him. That's all. He wants her to satisfy his, attitude, his appetites. And then he hates her. Why? Because that's the nature of sin. When we get the sin, when we get the thing we want, when we're in our darkest, deepest sin, and we get that thing that we thought we wanted, then we have the letdown, the drug that we got. Then we're, the high is over. Then we're let down, and we see ourselves for who we are, and we're disgusted with what we've done. And now we're kind of raw, and we hate ourselves for it. We can project onto the other person. He's now done the thing, and now he hates who he is, or he hates her, or maybe he's just totally depraved, and he wants to move on to the next person. Depends on what kind of person he is. But now he hates her, and he wants the next thing. Or he hates himself, and he wants to get rid of her. And now he's such a wicked person, he won't even do the right thing. Bolt the door, get her out of my sight. 
Now, both brothers know the law of Moses, which states this, Leviticus 19, 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Amnon's already completely failed in this. I am Yahweh. Is this an option? God stamps it. I am Yahweh. Not an option. Do it. I don't care what you think. Do it. The stage is set for Act 2. Absalom hears what went on, as does his father David, but inexplicably, David does nothing to punish his son, or at least not anything major. We're not told of anything major. Perhaps he did a little something. A son rapes his daughter and seemingly gets away with it. Justice is denied, and Absalom's furious. He can't believe it, and so he wants vengeance rather than justice, and most of us can understand that. Now, here's the thing. Many people would think Absalom's doing the right thing. He's going to kill this guy for doing what he did. A lot of us would say, hey, here's what we should do. And yet, we just read in Leviticus, one believer shouldn't do this to another believer. Absalom has ways to get justice. But he doesn't do that. The king hasn't done the right thing. Absalom doesn't ask for that. Absalom puts bitterness in his heart and he begins to plan and to scheme and he schemes for years. What do you do when it's a prince against a princess? He needs justice, he says. He tells himself. It seems to him that murder is the only way out. But once again, sin is seductive. This is how bitterness works. Hebrews 12, 15 says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. Bitterness is a poison that sinks deep into a soul, and it poisons everything it touches. And you're going to see how it impacts Absalom. You see, he thinks he's plotting revenge and it's not going to impact anything, but you're going to see that it poisons everything about Absalom. It changes who he is as a person. And you think Absalom is just getting vengeance, but it's going to darken his soul to the very core and he is going to become every bit as bad as Amnon and worse. Bitterness perverts you, changes you, twists you darkens you. That's why the Lord says, don't take revenge. It transforms us from the inside out. And like the lust that Amnon feeds, Absalom feeds that hate. It festers. It becomes a murderous rage. It keeps going until it becomes cold and calculating. Now, the point not to be missed here is that Absalom chooses to murder Amnon at a sheep-shearing festival. Now, this is interesting because it calls to mind two other great sin events. The first is in Genesis 28, when another Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, planned a way to get pregnant by her father-in-law after her brother-in-laws all wronged her according to the laws of that time. So don't forget this. The sheep-shearing event in Genesis 28. You need to go read that. We don't have time to read that this morning. But Judah wants to kill Tamar. Tamar at that time... If you were in that period of time, there were no real city-states. There was no way to be protected. And if you didn't have, if you were a single person, you were pretty much going to die. 
And so she was supposed to have, if, if you die, if, you're, if your um, husband died, then the brother-in-laws were supposed to get you pregnant so you could have children to take care of you. And they weren't doing that, and Judah wasn't helping her, and Judah was going to put her out. And so she pretends to be the prostitute, plays at the sheep-shearing event. He sleeps with the prostitute, gets her pregnant, threatens to kill her later. Right? But she's pregnant. It's a crafty little thing she does. And then she holds out his seal, and he realizes what he's done, and he has to repent and take her in. The second event is with Abigail. It takes place in 1 Samuel. Nabal, the fool, is her husband. And King David, not king at that time, and his men are starving. And they're walking through this land. And Nabal, the fool, is at the sheep shearing. And he's a sheep shearer. And he's got a whole vineyard. He's got all kinds of food. And David needs some food. And Nabal won't do it. And David's about to kill him. And Abigail, her, his wife, throws himself on David's mercy. And she, she says, look, don't kill him. And, and she sends him some cakes and some food and some donkeys and saves Nabal, the fool's life, who Absalom's here. All these guys are called fools. Uh, so, and saves his life. Excuse me, uh, Amnon. And so saves his life. Nabal then later is killed. And Abigail is taken as David's wife. And these two events form the backdrop for where Amnon is killed at the sheep shearing event. And that takes place in 1 Samuel 25. So both of these events foreshadow the wickedness that's to take place. Both of these events serve as the backdrop which we can compare Absalom. The Genesis account and this one, and both Tamars are completely wronged. In the Genesis account, Judah threatens to execute his daughter-in-law for infidelity. What a hypocrite. But at least he repents. In the first Samuel account, Nabal is punished by the Lord just like Amnon is punished here. In all three accounts, Judah, Nabal, and Absalom play the fool. In all three, they act wickedly, though at least one, Judah, repents. But Tamar, Abigail, and Tamar in all three accounts are the righteous ones, not to be missed. All three accounts, the ladies are the righteous one. Two act very shrewdly. One simply does the right thing. God clearly vindicates the verse to the question in this story is, will he do it again here? Will God vindicate this Tamar? And here's the sticky wicket. Here's the sticky question. Is Tamar avenged? Well, it does seem like she is avenged. And this is kind of awkward. Does God avenge her by, mur- by having Amnon killed? Absalom does it, and he's wicked. And we have to ask ourselves, well, Amnon is killed, but Absalom does it the wrong way. Is this God's vengeance or is it not? It leaves us scratching our head. God uses even the wicked to accomplish his ends, right? turns out life is pretty sticky, isn't it? 
The Old Testament doesn't give us the neat answers we want to see, but then neither does life. It isn't always a happy, clappy ending. Life isn't always black and white. And that's what the Old Testament shows us, folks. It isn't always black and white. See, I asked you tough questions at the beginning. There are tough things that happen to people, and we ask all the time, where was God in that? He was still there. I don't know why it happened. And we have to understand that difficult things happen. And we do know in the Old Testament that God uses pagan kings to punish Israel. He uses pagan kings to punish others. And he says some pretty harsh things are going to happen. Just follow us in our Joshua Bible study or Samuel Bible study or the second Samuel Bible study. So does God use Absalom to punish Amnon, one wicked person to punish another wicked person? Well, sometimes God accomplishes his will in a way that offends our sensibilities. Why is that? Well, God is much bigger than us, and he doesn't much care that we always understand his ways. We live in a sinful world, and we made this sinful world, and so God's going to use this sinful world with sinners in it to accomplish his end. 2 Samuel 13, this is all I can say, gives us a picture of the wages of sin. This is what I know. Lust and bitterness fed and watered turn into rape and revenge. Lives are destroyed. Sin and faith are both seeds. What would have happened if Absalom had done the right thing? I don't know. God would have worked it out another way. I do know. He didn't, and it was worked out this way. But I do know that these sins were fed and watered, and they turn into dark sins. Sin and faith, then, it says, are both seeds. They begin small and they begin to grow. We water them, we feed them, and before we know it, faith grows into a mighty oak. Sin grows into kudzu. The oak is hard to fell, a shelter from the storm. Kudzu takes over everything, choking the life out of it, killing it, and at the end of the day, kudzu is all that exists. The question this passage asks, and I'm asking this morning, which one are you nurturing? Amen.